Welcome to Proudly Asian, a podcast series that tells bold and proud stories of Asians by Asians. I'm Isabel Wong, a financial journalist who wants to uncover the many Asian stories around us that are waiting to be told. There's never just one way to look at Asians. This podcast will take you through a deep dive into the life stories, struggles, and triumphs of young Asians around the world. On today's episode, we have Ano Hashcho, a Mongolian content creator based in the capital city of Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar. With over 94,000 subscribers on her YouTube channel, Ano was previously in broadcast journalism and publishing where she was a financial news host and editor at large. She talks to us about common misconceptions about Mongolia and why Mongolia is the place for media innovation. Welcome, Anur, to Proudly Asian. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. How are you? How's Mongolia? And what have you been up to? Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on this show. And thank you, Isabel. And then also everyone who's watching. Hello. Uh, thank you for taking some time to hear this two girl talk about what they <laughs> are doing. Um, so yeah, I'm just in Mongolia at the moment, spring has just started, shall we say. We still had snow last week or so in Mongolia. Oh, wow. So, I mean, the weather needs to get the the memo that it is already summertime and such. Um, yeah, um, I've been, things have, have been happening. A lot of things have been going on, different endeavors. Um, recently, I've managed to publish a book on my own. I was the author, shall we say. I, we did, a, a couple of partners of mine, like friends, we t- managed to translate a book, uh, Invisible Women by Carolyn Criado Perez, into Mongolian so that women and girls, also boys, you know, have do it's more, more um, evidence-based understanding of how this data bias influences all our uh, decision-making on that end. So that was some putting my feet into a publishing business per se. And then I'm at the moment, I'm working on my own book. I think we can go into it later down the interview. Yes. Yeah, so stay tuned. <laughs> and if the English version ever launches, do let me know, or I'll have to spend a bit of time to learn Mongolian before I could get to your book. <laughs> but yeah, definitely, we should talk a little bit more about what you've been up to a bit later. But for now, um, let's let's start with the basics. I do start off the episode by asking the same question to every single guest of mine who is on Proudly Asian. So tell us about your background. Who are you? What are you? And where did you grow up? So who am I is a, a Mongolian girl, who a person who is doing everything that she can. So at the moment, I am identifying as a content creator. I used to be a more news person. I was a journalist by work, not by training. And I left that job, um, or business news jobs, to pursue content creation, basically to become a YouTuber. And it has been going so far so great and I'm currently based in Ulaanbaatar, the capital city of Mongolia. Total population, 3 million, and half of it, of it lives in the city. Um, so at the moment, I am more focusing on creating educational content in Mongolian, but educational content that is surrounding financial literacy, and as well as at some times even content making as well, more planning, optimizing workflow, and also... For a long time, YouTube subscribers would know that I sometimes go into skincare as well, which is which I'm passionate about. So I do try to mix in a lot of things that I'm currently obsessed about into my videos, per se. And I try to give add more educational aspect on top of all the contents that I'm making so that especially people who are not fully like speaks English would be able to understand what the international community in different asp- uh, different sectors are talking about or being excited about. Those are done in Mongolian. So I'm doing that at the moment. Um, as growing up, I do, at the moment, I'm living in the city that I grew up. I'm from Ulaanbaatar, but fun fact, I was made in Russia <laughs> because 
um, Mongolians was apart from um, Eastern Bloc or Soviet country that a lot of students who would study in the Russian universities and my parents met there. So I think mm. you get what I mean by that. I'm, and I'm the oldest one. So I did what well, I was made there, but I grew up in Ulaanbaatar and Mongolia, just all across the city and the countryside during the summertime. And um, at the moment, <laughs> shall we say, I do speak Mongolian and I'm trying to speak very eloquently in English, but failing at it. <laughs> so I think I would say the second language that I speak best would be English. But I do dabble into other languages that if I land in Turkey, I wouldn't starve, but I wouldn't be able to make a lot of sense. So I speak Turkish a little bit and mm. also some French. And nice. also I do sometimes if I am in the environment, I understand Russian, um, sometimes speak it. But if I'm outside of the environment, I just no idea what's happening. Mm. Wow. I mean, that that's quite amazing, your language skills. And you mentioned a little bit about your YouTube. I, I gotta say, I mean, it's quite an achievement in terms of your YouTube channel because you have over 94,000 subscribers. I'm sure it's way more than that by now. And you're reaching all the Mongolian audiences. I mean, just a quick question. Do you have any plans maybe translating some of your content to reach a more international audience base? Mm, that is a uh, something that all creators who are who does not speak English would at some times think about. Friends of mine are still convincing me to actually do my content in English, and the creator would choose that because people subscribe to my channel because I was speaking Mongolian specifically. It would probably make sense to open a new channel, maybe to speak in English, or should I utilize the one that I have? And then add more English content is always thought. But I do have a few people who are volunteers, shall I say, who transcribe my videos into English so that they close caption it. So that is at the moment done on a very few videos. So um, that's being done as far as different language uh, translation happening there. But I do think about whether it should be best to do originally in English in English or to mm. keep the stage so it's still not decided yet but it takes a lot of work to translate a video so might as well do it in English is what I'm thinking but that comes with its own baggage I mean English speaking creators are like if it's not millions it's in hundreds and hundreds and thousands right and at the moment so that's a very saturated market that's out there and to be honest, I'm a little bit scared. I remember checking out your YouTube channels, right? And I, I saw some of the really interesting videos. And, you know, at some point I was like, oh, I wish I understood what she was doing. Or I, I wish I understood what the video was about. Because I think the visuals that you were showing were something that I don't see every day, right? And I definitely think, I mean, it's not just the language um, that matters, but like where you are and the kind of story that you're telling is quite unique. Because I don't think there are a lot of like English content creators who are currently based in. Uh, Mongolia or are there some? At the moment they don't really speak Mongolian speak English shall we say mm. but there are a couple of creators well at least one that I can think of do have like a Mongolian cooking channel that's like all mm. about Mongolian cultural cooking but are in English but they don't really talk much they rather show and tell type of videos mm. so there are very big channel that is speaking shall we say in English but to talk about Mongolian culture especially about food culture shall we say and I mean specifically going back to your background right I, I want to know a little bit more about what it was like growing up in Mongolia uh, your hometown Ulaanbaatar um, how was the schooling experience what was breakfast like schooling wise I mean um, I went through about six middle schools between grade one up until graduation so I did experience different varieties, both like the state schools that are like funded by the state or the, uh, the government, also through more private schools um, that were I was able to learn more Turkish or, or better mm. English, shall, shall I say. So it is very all, all across the board. And um, so it's quite different. I mean, sometimes even just think about it, the state schools have about 50 kids in one class. 
Um, I think wow. that's a lot by every country standard. Um, but yeah. gladly, I was able. To, mine was about like around thirty, but nowadays I'm told that state schools have like fifty kids in single classroom, so it's a bit. I mean, not not ideal, shall I say? And uh, private schools are a thing here. And if I was going to high school or middle school in private schools now, I wouldn't be able to afford it. Thankfully, mm-hmm. when I went, that was much more affordable back then is what I'm told. So access to education is um, becoming, it's harder, as people would say. But I was told that like when I was in school, that's longer than I want to admit. <laughs> that's literacy rate was over 90 percent 99 even 99 percent now the recent number is around like much lower than that so that does show kids are not being able to go to school these days but for me it was like fun for me i'm not sure i'm sure for my parents it was not fun to manage a kid that's like going through the school and going back to the question i mean breakfast I think you probably might be able to relate. I mean, it's it's a lot of bread. It's a lot of bread in our cuisine, especially with more Russian influence that happened during like middle mid in during the Soviet years or so. We do have very Russian palate um, developed. Also, having been raised by my grandparents in a very young age, I do share their food, so I do have a very old palate had a very old palate so milk tea in the morning but with salt salty milk tea oh. mm, it's oh. not there's no sugar in it and also bread alongside with some butter it's good butter we do have good dairy good butter and then sugar so oh, that's a wow. very russian thing to eat uh, so like as when you ask like how what's breakfast that's that's the food that i grew up on um, maybe that explains my chubby cheek. <laughs> and nowadays, I mean, coffee is the breakfast. I mean, mm. much like all of us, we don't have breakfast and we just have coffee for breakfast. I mean, it's quite interesting. As you mentioned, um, you add salt into your milk tea, right? Is this sort of the milk tea recipe that you would find a bit similar, you know, like in Tibet, they would also have this uh, sucha. I believe it's called butter tea or they would use yak butter a lot in their food. But is yak butter also something that's used in Mongolia? Well, anything that has to do with yak dairy would be specific to certain provinces that do have a lot of yak. Uh, Mm. For the rest of the countries, much more cow's milk is used. But as compared to other teas that people drink all across the world, Mongolian milk tea is very probably very similar to what you're saying, more Tibetan type of ones. But mm. we don't really put like butter, butter in the tea. But some people now put like ghee, like G H E ghee, to the tea. Like that's a very oily substance um, from the butter. So some people still do, but normally it's tea, um, water, cow's milk, and Salt, mostly. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is quite Mongolian thing. I think. I mean, if somebody would ask me what is like Mongolian traditional food, I I always struggle to that because nowadays everything that we identify as Mongolian food is probably some Mongolians would argue with me on this, but is not really Mongolian. It's more like a more Asian fusion type of food. But mm. milk tea or anything like dairy that Mongolians have, it is very genuinely Mongolian. So dairy, anything that has milk in it is very Mongolian. Interesting. And I mean, just a quick question, right? You mentioned food, you know, you also mentioned your schooling experience, but what did you used to do as a kid in Mongolia? What are some of the experiences that would be shared by, you know, most Mongolians who grew up in the country? Speaking more on any experience that Mongolians do share, especially um, my generation, um, more like a millennial uh, generation, would share is I was struggling with it. I mean, what would what what do we have that is very um, common but might might sound interesting or different? And I come up with I think I touched upon it a bit earlier is that we went through the Berlin Wall fall. Mm. We went through like from a Soviet country into a actual free democracy within our lifetime and 
when everything fell, apparently it was like everything was scarce. I mean, any new good things, I mean, um, more um, free world. I don't want to say free world, but anything that any countries that do did have market economy, Mongolia didn't have in the beginning. So I think we all have this, I don't want to say struggle, but something that is always like glitz and glamour of newness, that's novelty that is imported from outside, like imported from America or China or where, wherever. I mean, anything mm. that's from outside is very new to us as a whole culture, as a country. So that's uh, compared to other um, Asian countries. That's pretty new. For compared to other European countries, there would be a lot of people would, who do have shared the similar experiences. I think, but uh, for Asian c- country, that is, I think, we're the only one maybe that went through a change. I'm not fully sure about would China be similar to on that one, or Hong Kong could be different, similar to that one. But I did think that's a common experience that we do all share. Funny story is that because um the like houses or like single home houses is not a thing in Mongolia, it's all like apartment complexes as much as just like other uh, more countries that do have small sizes. Apartment complexes is a big thing, and kids obviously go out and like, play around in within the apartment complex in the playground area. And I do remember that like dinner time comes. On the balcony, mothers are like shouting their kids' name, like "Come into dinner!" Like you know, name "Come into dinner!" And the kids shouting back, two minutes," <laughs> not not two exactly, maybe like ten minutes. And then and then the mother shouts like five minutes, and there's like like all whole neighborhood could hear their negotiations, <laughs> and one parents just settles done from the other end. Another parents like Anu. <laughs> <laughs> come in dinner time and you know something like that that's a that's a thing and we do even nowadays there's an expression amongst our generation where like when we when we're describing our friends from like childhood who who grew up together we would say roughly translated as we're friends who grew up eating dirt together mm. so because like playing outside with like all those dirt and grime off the city is like on us so that's something that we all share we do have we share that experience where we're just playing outside within apartment complex nowadays that is very i think it's becoming rarer and rarer with technology i mean kids staying in but I sound like a boomer <laughs> like <laughs> no. in my days <laughs> But it's um it's very cute um the the memories that you just record and then um you also mentioned that as a millennial in Mongolia you guys also went through a collective experience where there was this huge cultural let's say shift or rapid introduction of Western cultures or like other cultures left right and center so now we got to learn a little bit more about your life in Mongolia I also want to ask you about your career as a journalist as you mentioned previously that before you became a YouTuber, you were also a financial journalist in broadcast and publishing. So I'm just wondering why you decide to make the switch from, you know, hard news from journalism to like content creation on social media? Um, so yeah, um, I joined a broadcast news company like right out of college. I, I mean, even when I was going through my last semester in college, um, I did have a lot of free time. So I just thought, might as well start working. So I just started working as a foreign news writer. Um, they named it as a translator, but you don't really translate word for word. You actually write the news, like a foreign news in Mongolian. So I started working there. And the good thing about that was, I mean, right after graduation, a lot of my classmates did suffer from like not being able to find work. I mean, that's the first time that they don't have anything to do right? I mean, everything was planned out. And up to a year or so, there were people who haven't really landed a job or actually got, gone into it. But the good thing that I did start working right after college was like everything was already planned. It was everything was in motion. So I did work about almost eight years in um, financial news, or some would say very hard news. And the reason why I'm, I'm tossing back to my university or before graduation is that I had my YouTube channel when I was in university. So 
uh, like about two years before joining uh, the broadcast news company. So the reason why I started the YouTube channel was that because I was in a very Mongolian-speaking community, I wanted to improve my English-speaking skills. So I started doing like book reviews or like film reviews in English so that I would make myself speak English. Nowadays, I I say that, that was a creative procrastination because I didn't have any friends in university I could hang out to. So I just did YouTube videos back then. And the good thing is that because um, my then employers saw my videos on YouTube that they thought I could make a good broadcast journalist. So that's how it started. So I, YouTube had started way before me becoming a journalist or a broadcast reporter. So I have started dabbled in it in a bit. But towards the end of my um, broadcast career, I did pick it back up. But that time I decided to do it in Mongolian because having had the privilege of knowing like English in a proficient level, knowing different languages do help you, like in, do help enlightening you, open doors to a lot of things. So I was able to learn so much and it felt very selfish just to keep that knowledge or the experience to yourself so i just wanted to share that to the people who are not do not able to or not don't have time to do the research on their own or whether it's due to a language barrier or just time constraint and such so i just started doing mongolian videos just explaining things that i learned thanks to knowing english so that has been something that I've been doing. and But in a year or so, it started taking tractions, a lot of more subscribers, followers coming up. And then also sponsors reached, started reaching out to me and to collaborate on projects. And at some point, I mean, the, the earnings from my um, YouTube or content creation site did surpass my salary that I was making in, in broadcast. So it was a logical thing to, towards the end, just to switch it. I think the secondary, maybe even probably maybe primary reason that I switched was in the broadcast company that I was working for. I think I was at the top of my uh, career development there anyway. I mean, following my editor at large uh, position, what well, next in line was a news editor, I think, uh, or the news director, like the head of the news. And I didn't want to be a news person. And because I wasn't a news person, I just, it didn't make sense to reach there. It's like, okay, I'm done here. This another opportunity opened up. Might as well jump towards it and see where it goes. So I had the audacity to leave my stable job in the middle of pandemic in 2020 with like about emergency funds saved up to sustain me for maybe like three to six months. Even That's even like very cushy cushion. So I just left <laughs> and thankfully it turned out well. <laughs> mm, wow. I mean, what a story. I mean, just a quick follow up. I mean, I'm not sure if you know, I also um, used to be in broadcast journalism. I, I'm also so curious, what, what is something that you enjoyed or what is something that you didn't quite enjoy? You know, for example, did you have to do like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. core time in the morning? Uh, you know, long shifts, you know, what, what are some of the highlights or low lights from the broadcast days. Oh yeah, um, well, low lights. Uh, the earliest call time that I had for two years was five a.m. So oh. which is which is not that bad comparatively, but it is still bad. I mean, you yeah. cannot you cannot go out with your friends. I mean, you're like nodding off by like eight a.m. Right, so that's pretty tough. I think I'm sure you would understand. And the the greatest call time that I had was like seven a.m. Mm. So it's not that. There's not much traffic, so it can get to work very early, but you get to leave at 4 p.m. Barely leave at 4 p.m., but, I mean, traffic was a big thing. So um, the early hours or, like, the longer hours were tough. I mean, sometimes if you, even I, when I came in at 5 a.m., I would be leaving at 2 a.m. On a very, like, rare occasions, I would be doing that, but I never left at, like, 2 p.m. when I was, I had a 5 a.m. Um, call mm. so long hours was not great but the highlights was like because I wasn't trained as a journalist it was like very steep learning curve for me but we learned so much working for and with talented people I mean you just absorb all those knowledge and experience right 
So I'm very grateful that I was been, have been able to work with people that I worked with when I did. So even to this day, I mean, companies reach out to me to commission like more content work, scripting, or even editing jobs. That uh, calls are coming from because I worked for a news organization, not because I'm a I'm a YouTuber. Um, so that is something that is very great. Um, I changed the trajectory very a lot, <laughs> and. <laughs> Also, I mean, back in college when I started YouTube, now when I, I'm doing music, a lot of journalistic principles are applied when producing the content that I do. So that work ethic, I think, was something that I've learned from early hours broadcast live news shows. So that's something that I, I'm fond of. Like highlights of working for uh, broadcast journalism is that the rush, I mean, especially like something happens that's like out of your control and then just being on air just managing it with your team with your producers and just making it work and once that show is out the hours over you get this amazing feeling when you have like accomplished much I'm, I'm sure you would relate to it I mean the live show experience especially when everything's not going to according to plan because of whether it be a good thing or a bad thing, something emergency happens, that's amazing. And that like uh, election coverages or something, that is a very rush feeling that you get. Those are the highlights there. And also working with teams that are like in collaboration. I mean, for broadcast, people only see the anchors or the hosts, right? Mm. But it's, it is a very collaborative effort like the producers and also the tech people in the PCR in the gallery. It's a, it's a, it's a collective thing. And although you are the face of it, it is a work of a lot of people that is like working together, like probably like seeing them more than you're seeing your family members. So for broadcast people, your work people becomes your family. So that's yeah. the greatest part, I think. And that really taught me how to work in, in teams and also on your own, like in, like taught me work discipline and such, and, and still use it to this day. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I can totally relate everything that you just mentioned there, because when you come out of broadcast, you've sort of become this like superwoman or superman figure where you are sort of able, I don't like to say that, but then it's like you're sort of actually able to do everything, right? Like as an on-air talent, you would be able like to go on camera and report and host. But then at the same time, like we have also learned to be quite hands-on. Like if we have to pick up a, a camera and film a package, we can do that. If we need to edit the videos, we can do that. And then if we need to do the, some lighting and then, you know, fixing some technical issues, we, we can do that as well. So in a way, like we we actually become really hands-on people. And, and I think that, that sort of explains why for most people after a broadcast career, they would get a lot of like different opportunities because they have trained during their broadcast days to become mm -hmm. sort of like a jack of all trades or like Jill of all trades. So <laughs> we are able to, to do a lot of things, which I mean, I can totally relate to that. Mm -hmm. And out of curiosity, I, I want to know about the media landscape in Mongolia as well, right? Like it, it seems like from what I've heard, I've heard that there are quite a few media startups that are popping up in Mongolia. Indeed. Um, one of the NGOs that I work for, Nest uh, Center for Journalism and Development, did make a media landscape study in collaboration with Splice Media. You might have heard of them out, out of Singapore. So with the finding, that was very interesting what they found out about the current situation of media landscape in uh, Mongolia. There are too many um general media companies that are operating in Mongolia. It's, it's all about it's whether it's like state politics or economics, very large, large area. So it's basically uh, media personnel are uh, working for very similar companies and a lot of them. So there are lack of hyper local journalism within Mongolia and also like a media that is able to Oh, that the consumers of certain media or news content that they can pay for is very lacking in Mongolia and there is a room to grow there was something that is interesting. So, and reflecting that, and also you did mention like newer uh, media companies or startups are popping up in Mongolia is yes, I would answer like there are media organizations that are popping up, but it's very, I would say modern, 
but it's new. It is like, it's not like hard news or hard only journalism. It's either like media tech or tech media or like more financial media, but none of them are actually trained journalists. I mean, they're doing whichever, like bringing in their own knowledge from whatever, wherever they worked for into like more media companies. So there are like newsletters or only podcasts or video casts that are like utilizing this modern technology and like the newness that the, the platforms that are providing are popping up everywhere. Facebook is a big thing. So there are like Facebook based media organizations are there, like many Substacks is growing and also email is growing. I mean, it's it's similar everywhere. People are not watching television that much, especially mm. news, right? I mean, we're getting our news from, it's on news on demand. So those uh, professions are turning into more different media roles uh, over there. And there, mm. there lies the opportunity for growth for media companies here. And especially though, if there are, if they are curating uh, their content to the people that they are asking for it. So regardless of the audience size, whether it be big or small, as long as the audience is actually using it, they are willing to pay for it, however it's like. So nowadays, their newer companies are trying to not make like, news for free, but actually like subscription-based type of thing is on the rise. I uh, feel like it's on the rise and also... Uh, Nest Center is uh, coaching a few, uh, four uh, media um, startup companies. Like it's like an incubator. Um, our pilot project is an incubation for four uh, startups within Mongolia. So we'll see. Absolutely. And I mean, I've just been curious about, you know, why Mongolia, right? I mean, I've been thinking, oh, is it driven by the needs of the Mongolian audience? Do they have, you know, a very specific type of behavior or needs? Or what is it about Mongolia that is attracting all these like media innovation? Because I know another market that would have all these media startups coming in would be Myanmar. But then also at the same time, Mongolia also sounds like this like media innovation hub, which is quite interesting. And it's not happening elsewhere. You know, I've always just been a bit curious about, you know, what makes Mongolia the place for media innovators to be? It's only my assumption at this point. But I think um, because of the, the market size, it's quite small. Like population wise, it's just over 3 million. Um, it's a very good testing bed for anything. I mean, it, it, market penetration can happen very quickly. And I do suspect there are other tech companies doing their testing in Mongolia, using Mongolia as a test bed. So it's a, as a whole country, it is a very good sandbox country. So I think it's very easy to test out whether the, any, um, uh, any minimum viable product can work in the long run or so, so can be tested in Mongolian, Mongolian audience. And also the people here, majority of them are very, Oh, not like high tech savvy, but they do understand internet very well, regardless of it's in English or Mongolian. They find a way. There is a way for any Mongolian to find to. I mean, we we do have a have a word saying like, Mongolize it. So mm. we find a way to like work it out. Sometimes we're crafty like that. So there are. I think that's one factor that um, companies do like to test out or start new things. And also, I think the regulation is not very tight. Probably uh, the landscape, at least the legal or regulatory landscape, is pretty open. You can test different things or try different things here. Whether it's be not only in media, also in financial technology or or technology even. I think it's pretty available to do so. I think that does factor in into innovation here. Um, yeah. I see. Well, I mean, when two girls um, who came from journalism background, we just get so carried away yeah, talking about the media landscape <laughs> that we forget on the actual agenda. We still need to talk about the Mongolian culture, which is something that I believe uh, my listeners would like to hear mm. from you about as well, Anur. And But to start off... Um, I would say it's kind of like a funny question to ask, but I mean, you know, for those who don't know much about Mongolia, mm, right? They might imagine that Mongolians um, these days still live in tents and ride horses as the primary means of transportation. Is it true? <laughs> <laughs> it's false. <laughs> shall mm. we say. 
people who live in the countryside do practice in animal husbandry. So they do have use horses on a daily basis, but I wouldn't say that's like the main primary means of transportation at this point. Um, like cars, buses, any like any modern transportation we do have. We're lacking a, a little bit behind on EVs in Mongolia, especially around the countryside. But anything that's like modern is here. And as far as dwellings go or accommodation, um, now the like the Mongolian tent or Mongolian yurt, uh, some would say uh, we do call them gir, g e r gir, are used as a primary um, household in the countryside, also in the cities, and also people have live in apartment complexes or like single home housings and different types of. Housing, so it is very vibrant and very melting pot of different、uh, modern and old culture, or like a very historical culture here as well. And fun, good thing about、um, about the gir or the the yurts is that because it's very movable or very mobile, that it is a the ultimate nomadic dwelling. We still hold on to that heritage whenever people need to move around, especially if they have animals. Uh, in the, in the countryside, but yeah, we still suffer pretty modern. Hmm. <laughs> That's good to know. And I mean,、uh, when I was researching about Mongolia, the country, I, I also went on the internet, you know, to see, you know, what what is the internet saying about the country, right? So one of the things that the internet tells us is that Mongolian culture is a quote unquote rich melting pot of shamanism and Buddhist beliefs with an infusion of nomadic values and traditions. Does this apply to your life and to your upbringing? I would agree that it's a pretty much melting pot of different cultures or different, especially when it's shamanism and Buddhist belief. That's very religious beliefs that we people uphold. But personally, and also my peers would、um, agree with me, is that it's probably more atheist and agnostic cultures is prominent predominant here. And shamanism, Buddhism, it is here, but I wouldn't say it's like dominant culture. But it is some、uh, cultural characteristics that Mongolia have. Is there? I mean, we do have temples or like、um, Buddhist temples all around, and at this point, every family at least have one shaman in their household. Somehow, I mean, there was a boom of shamans. I don't know what happened. It was like a it's a phenomena back then. So there were a lot of shamans that are practicing here. So we do have that. But I don't think it's very、um, predominant, especially amongst our generation. But we do uphold more traditional beliefs and values in us.、Um, maybe I'm not fully realizing or like consciously realizing the values that I uphold is nomadic values or t- traditions up there. But I think we do. But it is quite like. Melting pot of like more Western and also Eastern、uh, cultures here. In fact, actually, can I share a fun story? I mean, sure.、Uh, last month, I think I visited visited my grandparents that um I don't like visit all the time from on my father's end. So they were very I mean adamant about me coming to for a visit, and I was like. Uh oh, what's gonna happen? I mean, when your grandparents call you with an agenda, and they're not telling you what's happening, that's like a like a hard thing, right? And I went there, and I came back with a Mongolian horse saddle. It's sitting in my very Scandinavian style home's living room with a horse saddle, and it and it do have very、um, natural scent, shall I say? Oh, so. It's not bad. I mean, it's just it's quite strange that I, I I'm in shock at this point. I do have I think my grandparents do wanted to instill some more、um, traditional values or at least like a heirloom or hand me down that I want to carry on to the next generation. I think they wanted to do that. So I think that I'm still not avoid devoid of anything like cultural or、uh, historical culture here. So. 
fun fact, fun thing that happened to me. So mm. I think that we t- that speaks to this very strange, this melting pot of culture that we live in. That's very interesting. And um, another fun fact about Mongolia that I read on the internet is that mothers who give birth to five children or more are rewarded with an honored mother award. Is this fact? It's a fact. <laughs> Oh, is it? <laughs> it's a fact. I mean, that's pretty bizarre for uh, for me, but it is a fact. I mean, awarded like medals on their social, like one of those military medals that people get, like it's similar, but it do have like mother holding their babies and oh, such. Wow. So uh, mothers who have, uh, I think it's like four or more kids do get that um, medals, but I think it, there's a tier to it, like. Um, like third tier is like four kids. Like next one is like five or six kids. So if you keep having babies, like different tiers of medals are unlocked for you. But I don't have like the numbers per se, but um, I think there are around like three tiers or so. So what you read on the internet on that end is is a fact. Okay, at least Google didn't lead me to some weird places with like non-Mongolians explaining the Mongolian <laughs> cultures. But I know we previously talked a little bit about like Mongolian cuisine, but then I just have some quick questions about that, right? Yeah. You, you mentioned for Mongolian cuisine, it's an interesting kind of like mix of maybe a bit of like Russian influence and influences from other cultures as well. I just want to know, what's your favorite? A Mongolian dish if there is one see this is like where I have trouble I mean like now when people ask like what's a Mongolian food that you like and such those are like boats like bauza mm. we do have it people do think it's Mongolian food but it's not specifically so I do enjoy more dairy foods but especially the fermented drink that we make from mm. horse milk which is probably the traditional alcohol that we have, but it's not strictly alcohol. It's still a milky drink. So we call it adik. Uh, it's sometimes similar to ayran, that's from Turkey. And also Japan started making similar milky drink. So that's probably would be my favorite. And you can make actual vodka out of it. Would you call that kind of like the national drink of choice for Mongolia? Because, you know, like in South Korea, like soju would be the drink. And then maybe in China, like baiju would be the drink. Is that the drink for uh, most Mongolians? If it's national drink you're asking, it probably is, especially during autumn, like fall season, because that's when the milk is like out, like the good milk that you can make it is out. But for like more drink of choice is different in way. I mean, some people enjoy beer because we do have very good beer. Mm. Also very good vodka. It's not Mongolian, but we make very good vodka. So we've been told. <laughs> but um, have you actually heard any ridiculous or common misconceptions about Mongolian food or, or the culture? You just said it on point. I mean, the world still thinks that we ride horses to work mm. every day. Um, that's the biggest that I usually hear a lot. And another, probably it's very, f- the feminist in me is talking is that um, culturally more East Asian women tend to be um, categorized as very subservient, right? Uh, in the, in the, on the world stage. It's I'm generalizing, but Mongolian women are not. <laughs> Comparatively, we're very feisty. So I think that's something that people misunderstand or misassume. So you would say sort of like the hierarchy or like the the gender equality situation is actually pretty good in Mongolia? I want to say yes and no. So on different socioeconomic levels, there are differences. Also, I mean, people who do have reached the like top or like upper middle class, shall we, shall we say, do have women do have um, a lot of equality on that end. But I don't want to assume or misuse the word like women do have mm. equality in Mongolia on all levels because that's just not true. I mean, the representation in the parliament or the government itself is like absurd at this point. So as long as, I mean, that, that women's uh, rights are not fully represented, I'm not going to say we do have equality in the country. Mongolia is such a, such a small country numbers-wise. I mean, there's not much assumptions going around in the world, or I haven't really met many people who do have assumptions per se, because whenever you meet people who have not visited or lived in Mongolia, they always, whenever I say I'm Mongolian, they 
there's only like two things that they go to is either Chinggis Khan or Mongolian vodka. That's all they know. So probably that's why I haven't heard of a lot of misconceptions, but I think that's, mm. yeah. Maybe that's um, also because not much is known about the country. But now we're going to move on to the next segment, which I'll ask you a lot of biased questions about Mongolia. And it's time for us to do Rapid Bias. In this segment, I'll be asking my guests biased questions they've got asked at some point in life and also some common biased questions Mongolians get asked a lot as well. So, Anyo, are you ready? Let's do this. First question. Do you ride horses every day? No. I'd love to, but no. <laughs> and next up. Do you just eat Mongolian barbecue every day? <laughs> In fact, did you know that Mongolian barbecue is not Mongolian? We don't eat Mongolian barbecue every day, no. <laughs> There's only grass in Mongolia, right? I think what we're missing in Mongolia is grass. We don't have enough grass here. <laughs> I think wind is everything that we have here now. And next up, why aren't you wearing the Mongolian costume? <laughs> um, because it's uncomfortable. <laughs> I would. I mean, actually, when you're living in the city, I mean, when you're living in an apartment complex, the usefulness of Mongolian deil, we call it D-E-E-E-L, so deil, does not really come handy. But whenever you're traveling in the countryside, that is great. So because we're doing an interview in the city, I'm not wearing it. But if I was traveling outside, I, you can find me wearing it. And next up. Are you related to Genghis Khan? Aren't we all? <laughs> and next up, not specifically for Mongolians, but get married. It's getting too late. Uh, what do I say to that one? Maybe I'll die a spinster. Finally, this one is translated from a Mongolian phrase from a comment that you got on YouTube. Mm. This woman's hair is long, but wisdom is short. <sighs> That's a weird thing to say in Mongolian. I mean, because traditionally women do have like longer hair when men do have shorter hair. And as a whole world, I think I'm not on the only one who gets this question or like this biased comments on my end. So women in the world unite, prove them wrong. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Thank you for playing this round of Rapid Bias. To conclude the episode, I want to get a quick Mongolian lesson from you. Of course, I don't know the basics. You can also tell me the basics as well. But is there one phrase in Mongolian that you would like to teach our audience? I would say, like, hello is probably the easiest one. But I would want to say, like, very Mongolian version of it would be Amr Beno. Amr? Amr. Beno. Beno. That's like, how do you do in a very, like, the words that that is only used during probably the Lunar New Year, uh, not in the daily life. But whenever mm -hmm. somebody says Amar Beno, even like outside of the Lunar New Year, that's very nice, isn't it? I mean, that's very Mongol cultural thing that we use. So I would want to say Amar nice. Beno. So I'd like, with, with that word, I, I would invite everybody who is watching outside of the country to visit us in July. That would be the best season to come. <laughs> And for those who are curious about um, your content that you're producing, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me basically everywhere just using the uh, my name, Anno Hashjo. I'm on YouTube, on Instagram, Twitter. Um, I don't use Facebook that much, but I'm there. Uh, might not respond, but I'm there. <laughs> well, I'm on TikTok, but I'm just a watcher. I just feed the algorithm. <laughs> I don't really watch it. So Instagram and, and YouTube and Twitter. That would be the best place to go. Look at look up Anohashcho and you'll find me there. Nice. And what can you tell us about your upcoming book that you're currently writing? Oh, um, yeah. Um, I'm working on this personal finance guide type of book that's especially for younger people who are only graduating high school or university for that matter to when who are entering like entering their first employment. Uh, to teach about like taxes, shall we say, or like 
more um, social security, health mm-hmm. healthcare, even like mortgages, because these types of knowledge or education is so rarely get taught. They should be taught in schools, but not. I wanted to write a guide book for the young people who are like in a very easy language. Um, how to just teach them how to manage your taxes, how to actually save up for your emergency fund so that you can probably leave your job during in the middle of pandemic. <laughs> and also, I mean, just saving up for whichever you want to get to, whether it be like a down payment for your first apartment or for your year, yearly vacation and such. So mm-hmm. anything to do like very adulting um, personal finance aspect uh, of t- knowledge guidance for youths. Um, I think that's something that I could give it, give to the community, the Mongolian community, especially who are who do, who are not taught that and had to, from a person who had to learn that on the job. I know it can be frustrating, so I'm doing that. Yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. <laughs> and when is it coming out? I'm I'm gunning for um, September, mid September. So I'll keep you posted. <laughs> And finally, my last question for you, Anu, is what does it mean to be proudly Mongolian? The identity, especially nowadays, the identity of being a Mongolian is questioned on a daily basis, given political situations even happening um, in the country. What makes me feel proud about being a Mongolian is the values that have been taught and also the history, the enriched history that we have, and and most importantly, the prospect of future and the what what future holds for us is making me proud and excited to be Mongolian. Thank you so much for joining us for Proudly Asian Annual. It was a really lovely chat. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you everyone for joining us. That's it for this episode of Proudly Asian. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at proudly.asian for more content. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Leave us a five-star review on wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and signing off for now. I'm Isabel Wong.